you, Lord. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen and amen. You may be seated in the house of God. How many excited to be chosen to be a kick devil butt generation? Amen. We're here to whoop on the devil, make the devil mad, and Jesus glad. Amen. Thank you for coming with us during this wonderful conference that we're having. I'm going to ask that our speaker who spoke to our youth on Friday would come up. Let's give it up for uh, Brother Eric Meldrew. He's a former police officer from Las Vegas, Nevada, has a wonderful YouTube page and website and speaking gift to help our young people and everybody to understand the role of police in the culture from a godly perspective. So, brother, just tell us about what you're doing. Morning, y'all. How you doing? And I just want to say this real quick. Like, my church back at home is, like, very subdued and conservative. So it's been a lively time of praise and worship with y'all this weekend. And uh, I just want to say thank you for having, Pastor, I just want to say thank you. Thank Lauren, thank TJ, all y'all, everybody that was here that just helped this process through. Um, and and uh, I appreciate all y'all that showed up on Friday to uh, hear, hear my presentation. I was kind of joking with the pastor how, you know, he was giving all this deep theology about the triune nature of God, and here I am. And you got, you got Bevelin talking. And then here I am talking about policing and all this kind of stuff. I was like, okay. But it all ties in when you look at how the culture is attempting to manipulate our hearts and minds to think a certain way and to look at a God-ordained position when, rightly, when done rightly, law enforcement is a truly God-ordained position and is necessary in our culture. Y'all in Chicago, y'all know better than probably anybody in this country today. Um, but yes... My focus, my emphasis, after retirement, I retired in 2014, and the Lord began putting a burden on my heart to address the, the uh, issues within our culture. First and foremost, one of the main things I said is that I, I strive for a balanced approach when it comes to addressing these issues. You'll never hear me say that police brutality is a myth. You'll never hear me say that because, unfortunately, I've seen it firsthand. But the reality is, as I said initially, there are, there are people who are attempting, are attempting to use this, the issues within our culture, to divide us ethnically, uh, socially, on so many different levels. So I started seeing the discussions that are taking place within our society, and I said, you know what? My experience is pretty deep. Obviously, I've been a black man all my life, if y'all didn't notice, you know? And I have over 20 years in law enforcement, and I, I was a defensive tactics instructor, firearms instructor, active shooter response instructor, crisis intervention team where you help deal with the mentally ill. So I said, man, why not use that time I have? I'm retired. Why not use the time that I, the experience I gained and the knowledge that uh, I was blessed to be able to gain during my time to talk about these issues? So now the Lord moved on my heart to be able to travel and discuss these issues on different levels. So I started, my, I started Code Red Conversations, my organization, and here are just some of the opportunities where I was blessed to be able to speak. I was in Tennessee here speaking. This is a, ch a Christian church back home in, in Las Vegas, Christian school back home in Las Vegas, another church. So, and also he had my YouTube channel. So I hope that all y'all will like and follow and subscribe to my channel, where if there's any controversial police issue Shooting, use of force, BLM, I talk about it. And I t oftentimes I take unpopular opinions. But 
I will give you the perspective. And oftentimes I try to speak on how the, the church should respond to these matters because oftentimes we're motivated, we're pushed to re respond emotionally. And not that emotions aren't a good thing, they're a definite blessing, but sometimes our, we all know our emotions can cloud our judgment at times. So if y'all can check me out, uh, I just, once again, I appreciate this opportunity that I was given this weekend, and thank y'all for uh, having me out and for listening to me. God bless. Yeah, make sure you guys like and subscribe. He definitely will provoke you and bring a blessing to you with that perspective. So honest, so truth-telling. And it does fit into the Jesus is Lord conference because if Jesus is Lord, we're peacemakers. If Jesus is Lord, we're merciful. If Jesus is Lord, we're truth-tellers. And so how does Jesus as Lord affect you in your everyday life? Well, you have to honor and respect the police when they're abiding by the laws of the Lamb. And sometimes people say something like back to us, well, you use that scripture, you know, uh, to, uh, you know, Romans 13 for us, you know, young people talking to, to me, you use Romans 13 for us to obey the laws of the land, but y'all open during COVID. You notice that we're saying obey the laws of the land given to them by God. How many know thou shalt not murder comes from God? How many know don't forsake the gathering together comes from God? So when the law puts us against God, we always put God over the law. So you will have to arrest us to take this out of my hands. You will have to arrest me to tell me not to meet anymore. But as long as it's moral, as long as it's unto my God as a good thing, which it should be a good thing not to shoot people, not to murder, not to steal, then we obey the laws of the land. And then somebody might say, well, what if I'm wrongly arrested? What if I'm wrongly pulled over? Well, there's a way to do that. There's a way to protest your arrest when you get to court. Do not try to start something with the police officer who has a gun out there on the streets and expect it to go well with you. Just be wise. The Bible says, be wise as serpents, as harmless as doves. So we would rather you go to court than to be carried off in a coffin. Are you listening? And if, and if you can't get that from others, get that from us. When, when we come to the point of arrest, we're going to let you take us to jail. I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to run from you. You know, I may run and hide if they come and arrest us for Christians, Christ's sake. But if I was wrongly accused, I'm going to say, okay, take me in. And matter of fact, once I was arrested as a Christian, believe it or not, because I was driving in Florida and they had given me a ticket and this was in the late 90s, and this was, was before you could pay it online, so you had to send it in by mail. So I had sent it in by mail, but it must have went to the wrong address because when I was profiled in New Orleans and pulled over, they ran my license, and they said, it's expired because that ticket hadn't got paid. And then they tricked me, and they said, hey, just sit in the car real quick with us over here, and we're going to work it out. And then they never let me out until we got to the police station. <laughs> And then they booked me and everything over the ticket. Now, you know, snail mail back then, thankfully, once I went to court, everything got worked out. But how many know I could have been like, why are you messing with me? I'm a pastor. You shouldn't be arresting me. And that day I could have gotten a lot worse than just a night in jail while I'm getting processed, right? Because when I finally went and they had the evidence, they said, oh, our bad. You know, and I wish I could have got something more for that. You know, I wish I could, you know, you at least owe me a dinner for this, you know? But I'm telling you, saints, don't let the world, don't let the world give you their methods. Use the methods of the, the Bible. Amen? Amen. All right, so we're in our series, uh, or in our conference, rather, on Jesus is God, and we're also in this uh, new kind of series where I'm just kind of preaching what the Lord gives us uh, every, uh, gives me every Sunday, and so what I would like to do is take on some of these popular passages about Jesus being God and apply them to our lives. So let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and somebody say, God...
was manifested in the flesh. Amen. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, God was manifested in the flesh. Now, the first thing that I want you to notice when you look at your translation, and most of us here use NIV or ESV or something like that, what is, more no, what is known as more of a modern translation, what do you see in 1 Timothy 3, 16 as the first word there when it comes, uh, when it comes to appeared in the flesh? Does it say God? No. What do most of the versions say? If you have NIV... If you have ESV, if you have a modern translation, what does it say? He. Somebody say he. So it doesn't say God, right? Like here it says in the NIV, he. Now go to the King James, and let's see why there's a difference here. Why is there a difference between the King James and the NIV? These are the kinds of things you have to be quick and ready to answer and understand the differences. Otherwise, the world is going to have you twisted in a knot because they're going to say, oh, your pastor... Just preach God was manifest in the flesh. That's the message title. You know, that's what's going to be on the blog. That's what's going to say on our podcast. God was manifested in the flesh. But then they're going to take you to your modern translation and say, oh, why is there a difference? See, yours says he in the new version because how many of you actually carry around or read the King James? Do I have any classic folks? Okay, one, two. Okay, that's awesome. About three or four or five. Okay, but the most of you, how many are non-King James readers? Raise your hands. Okay, so do you see the confusion that that would cause instantly? I prefer the King James when it comes to textual issues. Why is that? Because I believe it's more faithful to the original. Now, you might ask yourself, Joe, why aren't you King James only? I used to be, but I'm not anymore. So you might ask me, what has changed? I still believe that the modern translations help us in the wording and reading and helping us to understand it in our day and age. But if I'm going to get into a textual debate, if someone's now going to pit them against each other, I'm going to primarily, and I say this primarily, like a star next to it, primarily prefer the King James. There are a few places where I will not prefer the King James, and that would be another discussion. But one of them, just for example, would be John 1.18. But just for this conversation, I want you to see this. In the King James, it says in 1.16, great is the mystery of godliness. Who was manifested in the flesh? <clears throat> Who was manifested? Come on, somebody say God. Amen. Now go back to the NIV. It's either he... Or it's God. Now, how many know that God is the heat? So we're not necessarily dealing with something that's a contradiction. We're dealing with something that needs to be explained. So God is also a he. Let's uh, keep up here, Brother Andrew. Would you help me today? I really appreciate that. Thank you. How many know God is a he? Amen. And how many know God manifested in the flesh is taught in other scriptures other than 1 Timothy 3.16? Where would be a scripture that you would say, I can show you clearly God was manifested in the flesh? John chapter 1. Let's go to John chapter 1. Keep that tab and just go to John chapter 1. So if someone says, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> can I get some water from the back as well, please? If someone said, oh, you need 1 Timothy to prove that God was manifested in the flesh, we'll say, no, we have other scriptures that teach that God was manifested in the flesh, but we still want to hold on to 1 Timothy. Now look at John chapter 1, verse 1. Thank you, sir. In the beginning was who? And the word was, and the word was God. Now go to John 1 14. John 1 14. And the word became what? So if the word was God, and then the word become flesh, don't we have the teaching that God became flesh? Do we have it? Okay, but now do we give up 1 Timothy because there's a discrepancy? 
Do we say, oh, there's a discrepancy. That must mean we don't know. We just toss it up in the air and we walk away from it. No, we have to do better than that as students. So going back here to 1 Timothy chapter 3.16 in the NIV, where it says he, that is O-S, transliterated from the Greek. So just think of the letters O-S. When you go to the King James, and please put up the King James, and it has God, that's T-H-E-O-S, and T-H in the Greek is one letter, theta, and E is the other letter. So there's only two letter differences between O-S and T-H-E-O-S, according to the Greek. Does everybody track with me here? Just think of an O-S and think of a T-H-E-O-S. But remember, T-H is one letter in the Greek, and E is another letter. So where do these differences come from in our manuscripts? Some people would say to me, Pastor, why are you even doing this? Everybody was shouting yesterday at the conference about Jesus being God. Why are you talking about manuscripts? Why are you confusing everybody? Let's just move on back to the shouting messages. Because we don't do that low-level stuff, elementary stuff here. Amen? I teach you the Word of God. I want you to be encouraged with the Word and not be thrown off when you go into the real world, well, they're not going to treat the Word of God with respect and honor. But I will preach a message from this that, by God's grace, hopefully you will get excited about. Amen? But I want to defend why I use 1 Timothy 3.16, as some pastors do, and that's okay because I don't always have the time to do it. They might just jump into 1 Timothy 3.16, and it's a great message, and we're going to get into it later, but never explain to you what I am here explaining. And the reason why I am, because it's important to know why we still hold on to this as theos as opposed to hos. And hos, even though it's O-S, has a breath mark there, so it's pronounced hos as he or which, in that way, which he appeared, or is it Theos, God appeared? Now, in the King James, it only really, to me, makes sense with it being God, because who is the he that's been spoken about in the prior verses? So look at verse 14. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry, that thou mayest know how to ought, how ought thou to behave thyself in the house of God. And I may know now why I prefer the NIV. Amen. We've already got here some these. Thou mayest and thou oughtest. Let me start again. Let me pretend like I've actually been to Bible college. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Doesn't it just sound good when you read it right like that? Come on. I still love the King James. I throw off Jared and others when we're talking about scriptures because most of mine are memorized in the King James. He said, I never heard that before. Oh, it's in there. Just, just search King James Version. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Now, even if we accept the NIV, that it's a he there, and we've already established God as a he, wouldn't it make sense that the he, the subject, is the very he that's been discussed about just a few verses later or earlier? The house of God, that's a he. And then the church of the living God, that's a he. Are you guys tracking with me? So if the NIV now says he was manifest in the flesh, why are they changing the script on who the he would be? That's why I love the King James, because it's the house of God. And don't mess with me, brother. Keep it there, 316, please. This is why I love the King James, because it's the house of who? It's the house of who? The God, the church of the living. And then who's manifested? 
God. That's why I accept it. Now, on top of that, I can go to historical evidence in our manuscripts, and there are different reasons why we believe it would change to he from God, and this is probably because of the nomura sacra, which is basically keeping the name of God sacred, and even in the Greek language, they wouldn't like to translate the word God directly as God. They would leave out some letters, and they would put a mark above it to let you know that it was the name God that they were referring to. This was done even in the New Testament. They got that from the Jewish people, and sometimes in, in ministry with the Jewish person, or you see them writing, they'll say, when they're typing in Facebook, they'll go G-D, because they don't want to write out the full name of God, but this is an old school tradition, from Christianity all the way back to Judaism, and there's probably some evidence that they were just honoring God in that context, and that it became confused over time, and they didn't know if the letters missing meant it was meant to be missing, or if it was the Nomura Sacra, that this was something that they were doing to honor, but I hope that I've showed you, and I at least put it to rest as we get to preaching here, that you will be confident that God was manifested in the flesh, that the he being referred to is God. Somebody say, God was manifested in the flesh. Now go to 1 Timothy, please, chapter 1. Why is this so important? This is so important to understand because we don't believe the Father was manifested in the flesh. The God that was manifested in the flesh has to be Jesus according to the context of Paul. So once again, let me just share some knowledge with you before we get into the message. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Now notice, if somebody says that Jesus is a Savior, and that God is a Savior, and that now that means that there are two different gods, they have confused the Trinity. We don't believe in two different gods. We don't believe in two different Saviors. But we believe just as Jesus is a Savior, the Father is a Savior. Now we know that God there is going to refer to the Father because he's going to mention him now as God the Father. Keep going. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from who? God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. So do we believe in multiple saviors? No. How many saviors are there? But isn't Jesus our savior? But I thought he just said God our Father is our savior. He is also. How many creators do we have? But in some places, the Father creates. Other places, the Spirit creates. In other places, Jesus creates. Do we have three creators? No. So as you can go through the Scripture, you can see that these titles, these titles that describe the work of God are applied to the Father, are applied to the Son, are applied to the Holy Spirit equally. Now, why is it significant to see Paul's introduction here? It's because Paul wants you to know that the Father is also your Savior. He wants to emphasize that in 1 Timothy. It's something probably you don't think about a lot, right? Because every time we think of Savior, who do we always think of? Say his name. Jesus. But in the inspired scripture by the Holy Spirit, Timothy wants to let us know that the Father is also our Savior. And this was to combat a heresy that came about during the time of the disciples. And it basically started with a man named Marcion and it had other followers. And that's, this heresy taught that Jesus was a different God than the God of the Old Testament. That the God of the Old Testament was a great 
great big meanie God that made all the Jewish people follow these laws that they can never really follow, and he did it to spite them, almost like a low-key kind of God if you follow the Marvel Universe, a God that has power, but it's only power used to oppress and to trick and for selfish, jealous gain. But Jesus was the good God. Jesus was a separate God from that God, and Jesus came to make right what that God did wrong. But you see now, Paul is letting us know there is one God, and that one God is our Savior. And specifically, the Father is our Savior. The Father, the figure of the Old Testament, is also our Savior with Jesus Christ. Isn't that special? Some of us don't even know why Paul would be emphasizing that. Why does he start off with God our Savior? Why doesn't he use the other terminology? It's because he wants to combat that kind, that kind of heresy, even though it got stronger after Paul's life, he wants to combat that so that if anybody tried to say that the Father and the Son were separate gods on two different pages, that that is untrue. Now, scroll down with me to verse 5 of chapter 1. The goal of this command, we're getting some commands here, but I want you to understand this. The goal of this command is what? Which comes from what? A pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. God is wanting us to see that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit want us to live by the command of love. That they want us, as the the triune nature, to live by faith. Now keep going to verse 12. Just summarizing this. Trust me, I'm going somewhere. So when we get to what is quote-unquote the good part, you'll understand the book of Timothy. Can I hear an amen? Because I want to teach you some things. Now look at verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he has considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Now, didn't Jesus teach us you can only have one Lord, one master? How is Paul now saying that I'm in the service of Jesus? Does that mean he's not in the service of the Father? No, he's also in the service of the Father because Jesus, like the Father, is the one Lord, Yahweh. But he calls Jesus Lord specifically is because that is the way he wants us to understand him because Lord is the most popular term for Jesus in the Old Testament. How many know the word Lord is in the Old Testament quite a few times? Have you seen it there? It's there over 6,000 times. And so sometimes, this is moving from a different argument from the Marcionites, but sometimes people like the Arians who see Jesus as a lesser God created by the Father to be like an angelic creature that now we worship and is somehow not idolatry, but they want to say that Lord doesn't mean Yahweh here. But let me ask you a question. Can anyone other than Yahweh call us into his service for obedience? No, only Yahweh calls us into his service. And Paul says he's in the service of Jesus Christ. Did you know that whenever you say, I serve Jesus Christ, that you are declaring him to be your God? Did you know that any time you declare Jesus Christ as your Lord and that you are serving him, you are declaring him to be the God of your life? Because as Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. So you cannot have two separate beings being called Lord in your life. If the Father and Jesus are not equal in divinity, sharing the one nature of God, you would have two lords. You would be contradicting Jesus' teaching. Can I hear an amen? Now keep on going to verse 17. I'm going somewhere. Trust me. I'm going to work you through the book of Timothy and then the end where we began. 
Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. How many gods are there, friends? There's only one God. And yet Paul is emphasizing that this God is invisible. But isn't he just going to say in a few more chapters, chapter 3, that God has become visible? Are you tracking with me? Just go to chapter 3 if you still have it up there. We're told that God is invisible. But then in chapter 3, verse 16, and staying in the King James, we're told that God appears. And then, if you can keep with me, go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, ending in verse 15. God, the blessed only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. And somebody say, amen. Now hold on. Do we have a contradiction here? Paul says that there's an invisible God in chapter 1. Then in chapter 3, he says, God becomes visible. And then in chapter 6, he says, no one has ever seen God. (laughs) What do you do with this as a cult member? (laughs) Do you understand what I'm saying? You've got some problems here, don't you? Do you understand how the cults can't handle the scriptures? But do you see that we come to the scriptures with the three persons of the triune nature of God? And we don't start that in Timothy. As I've shown you before, we start that in the book of Genesis. Please go to Genesis chapter 19. This is just review for those who weren't here yesterday. In Genesis chapter 19, we see two persons called Lord in two different positions, don't we? Go to Genesis chapter 19. And I pray to God I can find this quicker than I did yesterday. I wish I would memorize this. How many like to see your pastor memorize more scriptures? Every time I I do it, I forget them. Thank you, 24. Praise God. I got to highlight that. Highlight in this passage as well so we can find it easy next time. Thank you, my brother. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heaven. Is that a contradiction? Are there two lords according to the scripture? No, it got quiet. Are you guys confused? Okay, give me another tab. I know we're running out of tabs. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. We're uh, we're stalling right there, but go there in your own Bibles as we're stalling out with all these tabs open. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. When you get there, somebody say the first word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God The Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. Ahad. Now, does one mean he's one person? No, because ahad is the same word one used in Genesis. And the two shall become one flesh. Ahad. So what does the lesson teach us in Genesis chapter 19? That there can be two people with the name of Lord in two different positions. One can be on earth, like how we know as the son meeting with Abraham, talking with him face to face, and then one can be in heaven. Not two lords, but two persons sharing the name of Lord. Does everybody get that? Now, going back to our passage in Timothy, can there be multiple persons being called God? Oh, it gets quiet. Absolutely, there could be multiple persons being called God. 
Go to John 1.1 1, 1 and I'll work you back to Timothy. I'm so sorry you guys are confused. Can I do better as your pastor? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Are there two persons here being called God? Yes. Look at the second clause. We have three clauses here. In the beginning was the Word. That's the first clause. And the Word was with God. That's the second clause. And the Word was God is the third clause. Everybody see the three clauses of John 1.1? 1, 1? In the second clause, and the Word was with God. Is he Word with himself? No, he's with a person called God, is he not? He's with that person. Can you be with yourself? Not in a grammatical or a rational way. You can be that way in a bat nutty way, but can you be with yourself in a rational way? No, but he's with a person named God. In the third clause, it says, and the word was God. Is he the God that he was with? No, then that means the word can be called God and the person he's facing is called God. Does everybody get that? Now go to 118. Who is the person he is facing that is called God? Who is that person? The Father. No, the Word is not facing Jesus. Everybody pay attention today in class. Come on. No one has ever seen, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. In John 1, 1, going back there to the second clause, and the word was with God. Who is the one that the word is with that is called God in that clause? The Father. In the third clause, he is being called God, and the word was God. Do you get it? In the second clause, he's with God. In the third clause, he's being called God. In John 1.18, we're told the God he's with, and then we're reminded that he is called God. So once again, can God be applied to multiple persons? It can be applied to the Father can be applied to the Son. And now, just because I can see we need it in class today, let's go to the book of Acts chapter 5. It can be applied to the Holy Spirit. How many know when they lied to the Holy Spirit, they lied to God? That is exactly what the Scriptures say. Thank you. Now, just take it from here. How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to who? The Holy Spirit. So who did they lie to? They lied to the Holy Spirit. Now keep going here. As it says here, it says they didn't just lie to a force, but they lied to God. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied. This is verse um, 4. You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. So in the Scripture, who are the three persons that can be called God as God of the universe, God creator, not like a false God, not like a mighty person over somebody God, but one God creator, Yahweh, Lord Almighty. Who are the three persons that can be called God, starting with who? Father. Who else? The Son and the Holy Spirit. Now let's go back to Timothy. Go back to Timothy, chapter 1. I'm going to get to the message if I have time. Amen. I promise I want to get there. I think it's good. I preached it to myself in the office. I mean, I, th I think it's going to get you happy and excited. 
I do want to encourage you today, but I do want to build the foundation. I'm sorry that I'm not in a hurry to get you there because I want you to understand the scripture. And I appreciate our brothers in the back. You're doing a wonderful job. Can we give it up for them? A lot of scriptures coming out today. Thank you. Let's see if you notice what would be a contradiction because they has to, there has to be two separate persons in Timothy being called God. Otherwise, there is, is a direct contradiction. Let's start again. Let's see if you get it. Back to where we left off. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. In the first chapter, he says, Now to the king eternal, immortal, and what's this word here? Invisible. Can you see something that's invisible? No. And he's the only God. So how many gods are there? Only one. Be, be honor, glory, Forever and ever. Now, 1 Timothy 3.16. God manifested in the flesh. Well, I thought I was just told God was invisible. The only God is invisible. But now I'm told in 1 Timothy 3.16, King James Version, please. I'm keeping the flow as I taught you why I prefer it. Thank you. Who was manifested in the flesh? Who appeared in the flesh? Is somebody who appears in the flesh visible or invisible? Okay, now go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Somebody's like, man, just get to the good part, Pastor. Come on, man. Man, it's Sunday morning. I, man, I only had one cup of coffee. I wasn't expecting all this. You guys got to help me because I got to see you get this, okay? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. He's basically ending the book here. And he goes back to describing this person because the Lord Jesus Christ is described here. And now he says that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come, when, and, and take it out of the King James, please, so everybody could see the words that we've used before. Potentate is a little bit hard for us to understand, but just means all-powerful. But 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 in the NIV, it says, Which God will bring about in his own time, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen. No one has seen him or can see him. You Not only have you not seen him ever, you can not see him. To him be honor and might, and uh, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Now, do you guys know where I'm going with this now? Are you tracking with me? Who is the person we have never seen according to Timothy, uh, Paul's in Timothy, the father? Who is the one in 1 Timothy 3.16 that we have seen that was manifested? The son. Now, ask any cult member to try to explain that to you if they do not believe in the Trinity. Any cult member cannot do it. Just for fun, let's go back to our notes, please, because I want to keep testing these guys back there. I owe them a red lobster dinner. Just take, our, take your time, go back to Jesus as God, because I want to show you no cult member other than a Trinitarian Christian can answer this. I'm going to start first with the oneness. The oneness say there's only one person in God. God is sometimes the father, like Joe is a father when he's with his kids. God is also a son, like Joe is a son to his father, but same person. God is the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Go up a little bit more, please. Thank you. Right there. God is the Holy Spirit, like how Joe is a pastor. So Joe, one person, is a father. Joe, one person, is a son. Joe, one person, is the pastor of this church. So it is they believe with God. God is the father when he wants to be like a father. 
God is like the Son when He wants to be like the Son. And God is like the Holy Spirit when he wants to come and do things as the Spirit. That is called Sabellianism. It is popularized now by Oneness Pentecostals, and they cannot handle what I just showed you. Some of you are like, Pastor, be honest, I can't handle it either. (laughs) I don't know where we're at right now. I'm confused. Let me help unconfuse you. This is why there's cults, because they start thinking things like this, and then the problem comes when they work it through scriptures, and they now no longer can make sense out of the plain reading. Because according to a oneness, they have to say that God can be invisible and also visible. Do you you remember reading what we were told? God's invisible. No one's ever seen God. But God appeared in the flesh. (laughs) Counterdict much? So they don't have an answer to understanding how 1 Timothy chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 6 talk about a person named God that's invisible that no one has ever seen nor can see. And at the same time, in that same book, in most oneness, our King James only, in that same book, 1 Timothy 3.16 says, God was manifested in the flesh. They have no answer for that. The Arian or the Unitarian or the Jehovah Witness, they all kind of share the same false belief that say God is only the Father, only the Father, and Jesus is a Lord created being like how angels were created. He was first created, then other angels were created, and he is given privilege and prominence, and he sometimes can receive worship, which, by the way, is not idolatry, so don't worry about that. You can worship a creature now. But he nonetheless is not God, but every now and then he's called God or Lord or these things. But just get it in your mind. He's not the God of the Bible of the Old Testament, and then the Holy Spirit is a force. Well, hold on. God was manifested in the flesh. Abraham met with God before in Genesis. Moses met with God, and yet the Bible says that no one has ever seen him. So who is the one Moses is talking to in the burning bush? Who is the one Abraham is showing up with? Do you understand they have no answer for this? So do you see why the Trinitarian position is not a man-made philosophy? It is us being honest to the Scripture. And we have to say, oh, wow. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and chapter 6, Paul's talking about the Father. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, he's talking about the Son. But are there two gods? No, there's one God. But it can be applied, that term, to three different persons. God can be applied, that term, to the Father. And when you hear about never seeing God, you automatically know that's the Father. But when the term God is applied to someone coming in the flesh, we know that's Jesus. Because the Father did not come in the flesh. And when we hear about the Spirit indwelling all of us and speaking to all of us, being also called God that Ananias and Sapphira lied to, we know that's neither the Father or the Son, but the Holy Spirit is just as much divine as the Father and Son. Can I hear an amen? Somebody say, God was manifested in the flesh. Are you ready for the message? Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Just wanted you to understand why I believe Jesus is God manifested in the flesh. Can I preach about why he was manifested in the flesh? Can I get to the rest of the verse now? Because this part is what we just talked about right here. He was manifested in the flesh. There's quite a bit of stuff after that comma there. Amen? 
Are you learning? Come on, you have to study and know the word. Hopefully I'm not too hard on you. I want you to learn with me. I'm not a know-it-all. Please understand that. I'm here to be gracious, but I do want to tease you a little bit. Let's read it now in its whole context so that we can be encouraged by what I believe is our message today. God, uh, 316 in the King James, please. God was manifested in the flesh. This is an important doctrine for us to know. And it is a doctrine that has been verified by our brothers and sisters throughout the ages. Being a Christian that, that truly knows Jesus is God, it's not a Roman Catholic convention. Do not people lie, lie and tell you those things. Someone wrote that on one of Bevy's comments. I blew that up real quick. The Roman Catholics changed this and did that. That is a devil's lie. In the Didache, one of the earliest writings of the Christians, it's basically a discipleship manual. We are taught the Trinity to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It is clear from Ignatius that Jesus is God in the flesh, but he is not the person of God that no one has ever seen. This has been with us from the very beginning, and Ignatius was one of the first disciples of John, okay? So don't be lied to, to be deceived to. Hold on to the truth. Looking in the King James, and without controversy, uh, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. How many believe that's the story of our Jesus? Come on, how many believe Jesus came from heaven to earth? How many believe that the Holy Spirit justified him, not from sin, but justified the words that he said to be true by the miracles, the signs and wonders, and the resurrection from the dead? How many believe that the angels served him and attended him, and they looked in awe of their creator becoming flesh to die for humans when they weren't going to get the redemption themselves? How many know angels saw that and say, well, he's treating them more special than he treats us? How many believe he was preached unto the Gentiles? That even though he said, I was only for the lost sheep of Israel, he still had time for the Seraphonician woman. She said, can I get some, you know, some healing? He said, I don't give the bread to dogs because she came from a dog nation. But she said, oh, but even the dogs get crumbs. And he said, that's great faith. Woman, your, your child is healed. How many are glad he had time for Gentiles like you and me? And how many know that he's being believed on in the world, not only then but now? And he was received up into glory. He ascended into heaven. And now we have the testimony of the disciples, witnesses up to 500 that did that. God was manifested in the flesh. He did these things for our benefit. He himself was already in heaven with the Father. He came and did this so that we could have restored fellowship with the Father. It was us that was separated. Does everybody get that? It was us that needed restored fellowship. And so just as he told Abraham after he asked him to sacrifice his firstborn Isaac, he said, you don't have to do that. I myself will provide the lamb. I myself will do it. God himself came and broke a fix what we broke. Come on, son. Somebody. How many are happy you have a good God like that? He didn't just send an angel. He sent himself. He came into the world. He was and is our Savior. But now look at verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, expressly rather, that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. You see, that is what is going to be tested in our generation. 
They don't want to believe that Jesus is God. If they're going to believe anything about Jesus, what are they going to say? He was a good man. And they're going to try to deceive you into thinking that he was just a mere prophet, that he was just someone that might have taught some revolutionary ideas like a Gandhi or, a, you know, a Martin Luther King Jr. These things are coming from devils and demons. Why? Because they want to seduce you away from the powerful message as Christ is Lord. Keep on going. It says they're going to have doctrines of devils speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their consciences seared with the hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and knoweth, uh, know the truth. Now notice this right here. They're going to forbid to marry, and they're going to abstain from meats. I believe that specifically happened when the Roman Catholic Church started changing doctrines and saying no meat Fridays and forbidding priests to marry. But I also believe that it can apply to this generation. Don't get married. Just shack up together. Have you heard that before? And don't eat meat. Be a vegan. Isn't it something that people out of their own piety will borrow the same false beliefs from all generations? For some reason, people think that not marrying is better than marrying. And that the Bible says it's better, not, it's better for a man not to be alone, especially if they have sexual desires. Maybe some don't. They can live as single or give that to the Lord, as Paul said. But the Bible says from the very beginning, it's good that man doesn't dwell alone, that he should have a spouse, and that together they become one flesh and have children and build up the family which is the foundation for all culture. And yet we're living in a culture of seducing demons and evil spirits, teaching us Jesus isn't God. You don't have to listen to him. You don't, get you don't need to get married. And, and you know what? Stop eating meat and consider yourself pious. I don't want to be in a monogamous relationship. That would hurt the person I love. It's better to be in an open relationship. Look at all of these precious animals. I don't want to eat Bambi. I just want to eat vegetables. Isn't that what they look at as piety? So they forbid to marry, command to abstain from meats, the same as it was then as it is now, maybe for different reasons, but it's still a false belief. But the Bible says God had created these things to be received with thanksgiving of then which believe and know the truth. For every creature, somebody say every creature, of God is good and nothing is to be refused. Somebody say nothing. Nothing is to be refused. Don't refuse sushi. Don't refuse dog or cat. Don't refuse monkeys like in, um, uh, Indiana Jones. All right, let's give it a try, monkey brain. Well, how serious do you take it? The creatures outside of humanity are good for our eating. Yes, we might have been made originally vegetarians, but God then blessed food for us to come from the animal kingdom. And from a monkey all the way to a dog, to a rat, to whatever else creature you can think of, if it's not poison for you, you can bless it, and it can be good for eating. That's why we pray before our food. It says, for every creature of God is good. Nothing is to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Don't let any vegan put you down for loving a good steak. It's sanctified, baby. Don't let anybody get upset with you because you like lobster or suck the heads of a crawfish. It's been sanctified by Jesus. Don't let any Muslim give you trouble if you like lechon and have a pig roast. Amen. It's been blessed by Jesus. Let's keep going. It says, if thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ. Remember, you can't serve two lords. 
So how can he also serve Jesus and the Father? They must be the same Lord. They are separate persons, but the same God. Keep tracking with me. Nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. But refuse. Somebody say refuse. Amen. If you could put it in uh, the NIV now, 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. I want to get some good news preaching to you today. Somebody say refuse it. I'm going to give you some good news. You can refuse all of these things today if Jesus Christ is your Lord. You don't have to accept these into your life. Can I hear an amen? This is good news. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Did I skip a verse? Uh, I think you're in second. Uh, no, yeah, 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 7. Thank you. There we go. Thank you, my brother. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourselves to be godly. Everybody say, be godly. You see, you can refuse these things right here, godless myths and old wives' tales. How many are tired of being superstitious? You see, I got some good news for you today. You don't have to believe superstitious things anymore. You can believe what the Bible says. You know, sometimes you and I have been raised up in our culture with different superstitions. In the American culture, if you say something's going good for you, what do you have to do next? Knock on wood. Man, you know, I, I'm wakeboarding, right? I'm, that's what I do for fun. You know, I haven't fallen on that, that feature yet. I haven't fallen on that ramp yet. Oh, you better knock on wood. Isn't that the stupidest thing you've ever heard? I hear this from people who are scientists. People who, like, have, like, top-level jobs are telling me I better find some wood and knock on it before I go back out there and wakeboard because I might hurt myself. How many have heard that from intelligent people? Like, you know what I'm saying, according to the world. I know from everybody's culture, we have wives' tales, things about tossing salt and all that. You can refuse that. But rather, what are you supposed to be on? You're supposed to be training yourself to be godly. That means you don't have to accept sin into your life. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of how many people? Of all people, especially those who believe. Now, I want you to see this. Keep on going down, and I'm going to help get us happy today in the preaching of God's Word. How many are being encouraged? Amen. Look at here now in chapter 6, verse 6. But godliness, somebody say, be like God. But godliness comes with contentment, and that contentment is great gain. We are looking at a culture that because they don't know Jesus as God, they don't know how to have contentment. They don't know how to be at peace. See, because we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. Have you ever heard that saying before? Did you know that came from the Bible? Why is that important? Because naked I came in, naked I go out. If God is my creator, it doesn't matter what I've done in this world. If I don't know him, I don't have Jack Diddley at the end of this life. But if I strive to be like God in what I do, I want my job to glorify God. I want my family to glorify Jesus. I want all of my earthly possessions to be a benefit to Jesus, to my service as unto the Lord. The Bible says I have great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And here's a famous verse, I think sometimes taken out of context, but let's read it together. One, two, three. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Does that mean we can't have money? No, it just says you can't love money. It says you can't pursue it as your God because who is your God? 
Jesus, who is the one who manifested in the flesh for you? Who is the one you're supposed to be like? Who is the one that you're supposed to serve instead of old wives' tales? Jesus, who is the one that you're supposed to be happy and can't wait to see? Jesus, who is the one that you're supposed to pursue more than riches? Jesus. Because if you put money before your Jesus, what does it say? Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The Bible says that we are to flee some stuff. Now in verse 11, not only are we supposed to get away from the old wives' tales, but man of God, you are to flee all of that stuff that has to do with greed and all of that that has to do with worldly pleasure. And what are we supposed to pursue? Somebody say righteousness. Somebody say godliness. Somebody say faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. You see, this is our life. This is the Christian life. This is what Jesus was about. Jesus, the Son of God, equal with the Father, taught us how to live. And then when we hear at the end that the one we've never seen, we know he's talking about the Father, but who are we waiting to see? Who are we waiting to see, y'all? Jesus, keep this command without spot or blame unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, in closing in his letter, he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. How many are enjoying life today? You're supposed to enjoy life with Jesus. Jesus is our God, and he gives us a good life. Didn't he say that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come to give you life, and that more abundantly? You see, if you have Jesus as God, you have a good life. Get that in your spirit today before we get ready to close out. If you have Jesus in your life as God, you are content even when you don't have a lot. Why? Because what you have, you enjoy. How many were in a one-bedroom apartment at one point in your life? Now you have more than a one-bedroom apartment, but your enjoyment hasn't changed because the same God that was with you in the one-bedroom apartment is now in that nice house or wherever you live. How many used to take the bus but now have a car, but you have the same enjoyment because Jesus was with you on the bus and Jesus was with you in the car? Come on, somebody. How many were single, but now you're married, enjoying married life, somebody, but you're still having the same enjoyment because the same God that was with you while you were single was with you last night in that bedroom. Can I get an amen? Woo! Come on, somebody. You see, our enjoyment doesn't change with the circumstances that we're in because our enjoyment is attached to Jesus being God in the flesh. What Jesus did for me was turn my frown upside down, put a pep in my step. He took me from where I was to where he is. He changed me from what I thought I needed to what he had for me. You see, Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves because he's God in the flesh. He gives us these things for our enjoyment. Now look at verse 18. We're not to keep it to ourselves, are we? Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, willing to share. How many want to share some of the goodness God gave you? Amen. In this way, they will lay up for themselves treasures in heaven as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. How many know there's a coming age? Go to Matthew chapter 28, uh, 19 and onward. Jesus says he's with us unto the end of this age. Keep, yeah, th- keeping that tab up, thank you. But he says that when we store up treasures for Jesus' kingdom, we get to enjoy them in a coming age. How many know there's only one King of kings and Lord of lords? But we heard the Father called King of kings and Lord of lords. But where do we see that also in the Bible? What book calls Jesus the King of kings and Lord of lords? 
in Revelation as he's coming down to rule and reign. And so the Bible says not only is Jesus going to be with us, thank you, to the very end of this age, the age of the church, the age of making disciples, but he's also going to be with us, thank you, in the age to come. Come on, somebody. Somebody say the age to come. Can you put that back up there? I don't know where it's at, but in the age to come, you're going to have treasures for what you did for Jesus. How many believe Jesus is God? How many believe you need to live for Jesus and store up some treasures that when he comes back, you can have a kingdom to rule with him? You can have a place in the kingdom. You can have a kingship in the kingdom, a priesthood in the kingdom. Thank you, my brother. You see, the Bible talks about a firm foundation for the coming age. When Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, manifests manifests now for all the world to see. You see, only a certain group saw him when he came the first time. How many know everybody's going to see him when he comes the second time? And how many know his disciples suffered the first time, but how many know we're going to be blessed the second time? The Bible says that we'll be rewarded for that which we did on this earth, and we will rule and reign with him. That's why the Bible says lay up that treasure, lay up those good works, lay up those generosity, those things done out of generosity, that you'll have them for the coming age so that you may take hold of the life that is truly life. Because a lot of people are living, but they're not really living. You know what I'm talking about? And they're, bond, they're in bondage while they're living. They're a slave to the master of sin. They're a slave to the master of the devil. They're a slave to the master of culture. They're a slave to what's going on in the world. But how many know we're alive, but we also got a life beyond this life? Amen. The Bible teaches us going to the closing. Now, Vinny, would you come? 1 Timothy 3.16, somebody say, God was manifested in the flesh. What did we learn about that? He came in the flesh, not the Father. The Son came in the flesh so that we could flee the things of this world, not be deceived by spirits, not be following old wives' tale and superstition, that we could leave uh, you know, ungodliness and sin behind, that we would be able to pursue righteousness, peace, and joy, and all these wonderful things in the Holy Ghost, that we would be able to store up treasures in heaven and then to have them forevermore in a kingdom, that we would be able to be like Jesus, sharing in his nature, godliness, not becoming God, but sharing in the nature of God. Jesus being God changes everything. And a lot of times people want to bring us back to the questions they have about this and say, well, how do we know to trust it? Paul at this time was willing to die for this message. Some people believe, as you see in the NIV, because it's indented, that it was a creed predating Paul. And creeds often at that time were hymns or songs. Philippians 2 is also considered one, a hymn to Christ. And that these hymns, that these creeds, these poems were passed down from the original disciples immediately after Christ ascended. They didn't want to forget. And so sometimes people say, well, how can you trust this? How can you trust this? My friend, I have one choice in life. Everybody look up at me, please, of who I will trust with my soul. Because I agree with Jesus. You can't serve two masters. And, and as the Bible says, you can only lean in one direction. So lean on the Lord. Lean upon, not on your understanding, but upon the Lord. Are you guys with me? So you can only have one master. You can only lean on the Lord. You can only choose one path. I mean, let's be honest. You can't walk a bunch of paths. It's not going to happen. And you talk to anybody, they'll admit that. This is called the law of non-contradiction. A can't be B at the same time that A is different than B. Are you listening to me? And so everyone here, get it. 
You have a choice to put your trust for your eternal soul into one narrative. You cannot serve many masters. You cannot choose many paths. You have a choice for a narrative. You have to decide what narrative you will trust. Some people say, long time ago in a faraway galaxy, a big bang happened. What bang, you ask them? They say, we don't know, but it banged. Who banged it? No idea who did it. But somehow that it went from not banging to banging, and something that was nothing began to be something. And that's their narrative, right? And something without a mind organized things so we could have minds. Otherwise, why are we talking and arguing? Does two cans of pop being open at the same time fizzing argue with each other? Shake up a can of Sprite, open it up, starts to fizz. Shake up a can of Coke, open it up, starts to fizz. Are the, is the fizzing arguing with each other? Because if we're not made in the image of God with the soul, then all our brain is is just fizz, right? Just fizzing chemicals right now. Look us up under a microscope. Brain's fizzing. You can believe that narrative from the goo to the zoo to you. You can believe other religious narratives. There's a pantheon of gods. Where did they come from? It came from a goo. Honestly, that's where a lot of them believe. It came from a goo. All of these different gods came. Okay, where did the goo come from? Don't ask that. The Romans believe this. The Greeks believe this. Other cultures all these gods, there they are. And then you read about them in, in Hindu literature, just like you would read about them with the Greeks and Romans. The gods fight each other. The gods have sex with each other. There's a god in India, Ganesh, that has an elephant head and a man's body. Ask a person from India where that came from or Google it yourself. I'll let that be a mystery for you to be solved. But there are soap operas with the gods. You can believe that if you want. You can believe that there have been many prophets like Jesus. Sure, Jesus was just a prophet, but Muhammad's been a prophet. And you know what Muhammad is? He's the last and final prophet. Prophet. Oh, until the Baha'i come and Alibaba, whatever his name is, Baha'u'llah, he became a prophet after the last prophet. Well, how does that work? Oh, we don't know. So there's prophets after prophets after prophets. Oh, here's Joseph Smith. He's a prophet. You can believe in multiple prophets if you want, and you can try to do a buffet religion and say, well, this is how it all works. And maybe you'll find one that suits your life. You'll make a Mr. Potato Head religion. You'll put a little bit of Buddha as a hat, a little bit of Islam as a mouth, right? You track with me, a little bit of Mormonism as an ear. Just wherever prophets come from, I believe they came from God, wherever, you know, whatever country, whatever book they're preaching, I just believe in prophets. You can believe that. Or you can go to the Bible where it says God was manifest in the flesh. And the spirit that followed him proved who he was because there was never a person on this earth like him. Even his own enemies acknowledged that he did miracles everywhere he went. And that he was seen of angels. He had supernatural insight. He was preached everywhere, believed. And then here's what he did that Buddha didn't do. And it's not even said that Buddha did it. Here's what he did that Muhammad didn't do. And it was never said that Muhammad did it. He was received bodily before the witnesses into heaven. Now, I just want to be honest with you. I didn't always believe that. I didn't always trust in that. I thought I could do somewhat of a potato head religion. And I want to tell you what. It destroyed my life. I had no contentment, no enjoyment, no peace. I followed superstition. 
And my life was falling apart. But when I came back to the God who was manifested in the flesh, everything changed. Can I encourage you today to trust this narrative? to go and pray and study the scripture. And if you're a historical person and you want to do like what Lee Strobel did from the Chicago Tribune who said, you know what, I've heard preachers talk about this, but I'm just going to disprove this real quick about Jesus being seen as a miracle worker, Jesus being raised from the dead. I'll just disprove this in a weekend and come back to my wife because she was an atheist like him, but she started going to church, became a Christian. He said, over one weekend, I'll come back to the pastor and I'll prove him wrong and get my wife out of that church. Years later, he wrote the book, The Case for Christ, and now he's a Christian. If you want to start by reading Lee Strobel's book as he investigates Jesus, as you would investigate a crime scene or something going on in the city, that was his job. If you want to be an investigative reporter, you can do that, and I have no problem with it because I know the scriptures will stand the test of time. But here's the thing. I can't promise you you have the time to do that. I cannot promise you, you'll be able to take the years that Lee Strobel did. So I ask you today, to be honest, what is really holding you back from believing God manifested in the flesh? Is it up here, or is it really in here? Because most of the times I talk to people, and we're arguing back and forth about the historicity of Jesus, and I'm pulling out the museum manuscripts. It's in there. What are you talking about? They're getting blown up. They eventually go to this kind of a place. Well, even if that was true, I still wouldn't serve Jesus because he doesn't like homosexuals. I, wouldn't, I, I still wouldn't serve Jesus because I don't like that there's a hell. You see, the issue, my friend, be honest, for most of us, with God manifesting in the flesh, isn't that we have a mental problem with it. We have a heart problem because when he came, he acted like he owned the place, including us. And now he will judge us. Before it used to be only God can judge me. Now it's nobody and God can't judge me. Nobody, including God, can't judge me. Nobody wants to face a God who created them and they have to give an account for. And so what I would say, friends, is just humble yourself. Come to the truth of Christianity with questions, with some doubts. But if you can have a mustard seed of faith to say there is enough truth here I can latch on to, the Bible says he'll take you at that mustard seed. Because when I came to Jesus as God in the flesh, uh, you know, November 5th, 1995, you think I understood all of this? All I understood is that God came for me. God died for me in the flesh of Jesus. Jesus rose for me. There is a Savior for me. The Father is my Savior. The Son is my Savior. The Holy Spirit is my Savior. And I'm calling out to Jesus to be my mediation. I need forgiveness. And you'll start a journey that you'll never regret. Plant that mustard seed of faith in your heart today and call Jesus as Lord. Amen. Would you stand up on your feet? Give Jesus a hand clap of praise, saints. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Band and altar workers, would you come, please? God was manifested in the flesh. Let's pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. Father, we ask for anyone here who does not know Jesus as the Lord and Savior of their life, as the God who was manifested in the flesh, come to die for them. I pray they will repent of their sins today and start enjoying life with you with contentment. I pray that you'll rid them from old wives' tales. You'll take away from them the, the worldliness and the deception of evil spirits, oh God that you will set them free in the name of Jesus. 
We're going to be worshiping as we close out the service. But if you already know Jesus as Lord, would you raise your hand right now and just say, thank you, Jesus, for manifesting in the flesh. You are my God. You are my Savior. For those who can't do that yet because you haven't repented of your sins, would you do so just by saying, Jesus, forgive me of my sins and be the God of my life. Be the Lord of my life. Be the master of my life. I believe the Father sent you and the Holy Spirit vindicated you. Save me. Save me. So you're either calling out for salvation or thanking God for salvation. Come on. In just a few moments, we'll start worshiping and dismissing. But those who need prayer, we're going to ask you to come forward. And if you have never been to our church on a Sunday, we're going to dismiss out a side door, not going to the back. There's too many people waiting to come in from the back. But I just want to pray for everyone here that we would all know God manifested in the flesh. I pray we'll know him personally by the power of the Spirit that we'll know what he did for us so that we can live godly lives, content, full of enjoyment. few moments right now, somebody say, Jesus, help me to enjoy the life you've given me. Help me to be content.